0: It's not hard to find poems about trees. Robert Frost's got a good one about birches. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches, he says. Marianne Moore wrote in homage to an ancient elm in a New York park. Shakespeare's sonnet 73 Spruke's life in the bush, at least as far as I read it. And Sweeney in the great Irish epic, goes on a grand monologue in verse and lists as many species as he can think of, yews and hollies and hazels and aspens. And here in Tasmania, we have nature poets of our own. One of our forest champions once growled, there are a lot of fucking trees. Paul Lennon. He was the premier of Tasmania at the time. One of many of our civic leaders who haven't really given much of a shit about the forests here. I mean, he's right. Put another way, you could say Tassie is rich in botanical life. We have the world's tallest flowering plant, eucalyptus regnans. We have some of the longest-lived conifers on the planet, human pines, kingbillies. Our diverse tree species are home spaces for a plethora of birds, bats, marsupials and other critters. There are a lot of fucking trees, but you wouldn't get stroppy about it, would you? Looking out the double doors of the train carriage I live in, I can see maybe a good handful of different species. A couple of types of eucalyptus, Three different acacias. Daisy bushes, cheese woods, dogwoods, prickly boxes, native cherries, native currants. Sometimes sycamores sprout in the midst of the thickest bit of bush. One of the neighbours has decided to line his driveway with them, and now these weeds have tossed about their aerodynamic seeds to a radius of a few kilometres. I go out. Lop them down with a bush saw and add to the stack of brushwood that makes up a bonfire in the front yard. Likewise, last year I knocked down a couple of camphor laurels. But they are profuse and prolific plants, spreading stubbornly by subterranean methods. And I know that I will not have seen the last of them yet. The doors themselves are made of celery-top pine, which grows not too far from here. It's a nice bit of carpentry work which was done by one of the women who first dragged this old wagon into the bush. They've weathered a bit over the decades, though. Sections at the bottom have darkened with water damage. And as for the timber exterior of the carriage, it's copped it a bit more. Some slats and boards have gone astray and a door has fallen off, where the hinges cut into a rotting frame. My mate Pete came over the other week and pointed out a brick wedged into the façade. "'What's that for?' he asked. "'Just filling a gap, I guess, where a bit of wood has fallen out.' Apparently the train was built in the 1890s, so fair enough, I guess. It ran through northern Tassie, clad in a deep shade of red with yellow trim and lettering, the livery of the old Australian Railways Company, or so I'm told. The colours make a contrast that's quite extravagant with the bush here, against shades of grey and green and tan, even mauve. The dry sclerophyll mingles with wet forest species. Non-native plants infiltrate the local bush, But autumn doesn't spark splashes of red or tints of yellow throughout the scrub. Apart from the odd rogue sycamore or hawthorn. There's nothing deciduous here. So autumn and winter don't quite have the same meaning as in the Northern Hemisphere. But still I love the sequence of seasons. And the three autumns I've now seen in the train carriage have been among the most special periods of my life beginning with the onset of the pandemic, when the world united in retreat and isolation. It suited me, I'm afraid to say. I was ready for a rest then, if not retirement entirely. I spent plenty of my time over the course of those months going deep within myself, making my internal life compatible with that of the forest, putting out exploratory roots, working on what sustenance was really necessary to keep doing the things I most sincerely dreamed. It was like a poem of Mary Oliver's, which I found later on. I slept as never before. A stone on the riverbed. Nothing between me and the white fire of the stars but my thoughts and they floated light as moths among the branches of the perfect trees. Feels like a long time ago, all of that. But as I plunge again into a busy period of my life, the bush keeps giving the same generous gift. I come home from a fortnight on the road, and mosey through the trees and then I plonk myself down at the base of a big stringy bark or blackwood. There's this nutty old bush poem about a bloke sitting under a coolabar tree and receiving its wisdom. The tree simply seems to hear out the swagman, and the refrain of every verse goes, and the coolabar tree said true. I once performed this as a kind of comic piece, at the end of a tired period of my life in which I'd spent too long in front of too many different audiences. I guess the gig was pretty ordinary. Because my mate Daniel, who is always an astute critic, told me he reckoned I needed to go sit down under a tree for a while. You're only worth listening to, he had practically said, when you've taken the time to be on your own. And that is about right. But I'm lucky, you know, because I don't have to spend too much time looking for a tree to sit beneath. In my part of the world, there are a lot of fucking trees. I had an arboreal childhood. Years and years within trees. The two roads I grew up on were both named after species of trees. One for the lovely blackwood, and the other after a European species, the poplar, which I don't remember even seeing in the area, but there you go. That was in a new neighbourhood on the very edges of Launceston. Beyond us was a mixed bag of bushland, Our house was perched by the fences of farms, adjacent to a small woodland reserve slowly getting swallowed by suburbia. I was moved to a new primary school that had a sliver of bush at the very back of its grounds. In my memory it's like a spacious, shadowy jungle, but I know in reality that it was tiny. Yet it felt like a labyrinth, a series of corridors with roots laid haphazardly throughout the dirt floor. The forest was called the Waddles. I guess it was mostly made up of silver waddles. Somehow it turned into a miniature marketplace. Kids would arrange on the ground various objects they'd crafted and sell them. The local currency was acorns. I don't know how acorns got into the waddles. Perhaps there were oaks elsewhere in the schoolyard. And I also can't really remember what the kids were selling, other than I think my mate Kevin made a mozza from his cartoon drawings. It may not surprise those who know me that I didn't really engage with the mercantile nature of the waddles. Don't think I ever had anything to sell. And although I remember collecting acorns, I'm pretty sure I abstained from buying anything. I was already well trained to be very cautious with money. Perhaps keeping the acorns in my pocket would turn out to be a wise choice. Who knew when that currency might increase in value? Although if acorns could have bought ice cream or lollies at the canteen, then I surely would have squandered them immediately. But anyway, despite my stinginess, the Waddles was probably a fitting place for what appears to have been a rogue, unregulated, child-initiated market. A forest is a place of exchange, after all. Trees commune between the sky and the ground. Resources from the air and the earth commute through their entire bodies, from the tips of their leaves through to the extremities of their root systems. The structure of trees fascinates me. I'm no expert on biology, but even the mere facts seem like magic. Their ability to convert light into mass. The great networks of waterways that run through their trunks the way they convert carbon dioxide into oxygen. Trees never stand alone. They trade energy with the other beings in their midst, working intricately with fungi and bacteria. And of course, they are generous merchants. They offer shelter and create nurseries across species, never charging rent. Meanwhile, humans have, for eons, understood trees as providers as many of our most crucial materials. Just think of all the things we've done with wood. Looking around me here, I contemplate all the stuff that has been made with timber since the first Aboriginal families came to this island millennia ago. Tools, medicine, huts, watercraft, weapons, fire... There weren't a lot of realms of life that weren't entwined with trees, every part of them providing some purpose. One of my favourite images of pre-invasion life in Tassie is of hunters in pursuit of brush-tailed possums. The hunters would cut notches in the tree and then hook a fibre rope over them, hoisting themselves up to the heights to pull out a snoozing brushy. But perhaps nowadays we've gotten carried away, As one landscape historian has written, Tasmanians very often enter forests with an axe in hand, if not literally, then psychologically. From the early days when woodchoppers and loggers were heroes for acquiring timber to make shelter, we've gone hard on knocking down trees. Forestry in Tasmania has become an industry full of brutes, distrusted by a lot of locals. It has been a standard practice to knock over venerable old trees for wood chips. Significant specimens have been vandalized for no good reason. The traditional style of woodcutting has been replaced by a more disconnected, machine based clear felling. Over the years, many of those in the industry have had their work weaponized for politics and i know more than a few foresters who hate environmentalists so much that they take pleasure in filling trees because they know it makes greenies sad obviously it's a shame that it's turned out that way i've read how in other parts of the world the subcultures who have dwelt in forests and built industries from the resources there have played important roles The charcoal burners, the timber fellers, the glass blowers who camped in the bush on the edges of cities, working the raw materials of the woods and turning them into tradable goods. They were a renegade sort. Dirt bags. The word forest seems to come from the Latin word foris, which means outside. And maybe it's easy to idealize these mobs, but I do see them as potential role models. It feels as though people on the outside, those who live closest to the land and only dip in and out of the mainstream economy, feels like they've got a lot to offer politically. They're more inclined to have a crack at structures of power. They have less skin in the game. In the same respect, it's worth having a listen to kids who are like those of us who'd happily have dwelt in the waddles, forest ferals. I wonder how many of my schoolmates remember those lunch times in our forest hideaway. And I worry for the kids of today who have less and less contact with the bush. I know that our thin stand of trees is now gone. And in fact the space of that primary school must have been cut in half by now. The old oval being sold off for more suburban housing as well. They taught us well, those trees. I spent much of a whole year at primary school rewriting a childhood tale, The Magic Faraway Tree. At the centre of that story, which was originally by Enid Blyton, there was a giant tree in the middle of the enchanted wood, which reached up into mythical lands in the clouds. A trio of children scaled up and down it, encountered the curious folk that lived far above the ground. Now that I think about it, I'm not sure how I conned my teacher into letting me do this. No one else was given so many hours to put together their silly little stories. But I was left to my own devices for days on end, creating my own cloud-cuckoo lands and tree-dwelling inhabitants. I can't remember any of it, I'm sorry to report. But I bet it was batshit crazy. Really, I should have taken the finished product to the waddles and flogged it off for a stack of acorns. Surely literature was highly sought after in that forest market. Could have even been my chance to one-up Kevin. But alas, it now falls into the category of lost works. All those stories about a magic faraway tree. in the mountains, at the height of summer. We found a tiny myrtle beech squeezing up from a sliver of soil that had developed in a cleft in the boulder field. As a gardener, Sarah said with a laugh, this makes me very cross. How in the world was this rainforest tree getting what it needed to survive up there amidst all those stark bare rocks? But it looked happy and healthy. Better perhaps than the trees in Sarah's orchard. Another of my favorite individual trees in the mountains is a pencil pine that has grown curled over a waterfall. Its roots cling on as if with a fierce grip. Some day, surely, it will get top heavy and tumble down into the ravine. But it's had a red hot go. Often trees grow in preposterous places. They grow where they won't fit. You might even find them squirting up in the cracks of a city block. You have to smile at their ignorance of our infrastructure. They emerge blind from the dark dirt, wherever they can. And you have to admire their resilience as well. But of course trees are supported by more than their own roots. A forest is an intricate social realm in which living entities link up across taxonomies through methods that are still secret even to scientists. Even the dead trees belong. In Tasmania we have no termites so dead trees can stand for decades part of the landscape and their hollows provide habitat White fellows, I suppose, have taken a long time to get used to that. And in wet forests, fallen timber becomes the base layer for another round of living beings. I have dozens of these around my yard nurseries for different species, sheltering seed and supporting other root systems, not to mention the way birds and insects and mushrooms interact with them. I've heard my fellow bushwalking guides go on long monologues about how the forest recycling of nutrients gives a good contrast to our own wasteful mechanisms. It strikes a poignant note. Makes much of modern life seem a bit daft. Sometimes feels like we stand out in too many ecosystems. Aloof. Awkward. As if we're trying to be separate. Even my botanist mates speak about it as if it's all miraculous, this whole affair of the forests. Of course, I don't really get how it all works on a cellular level. The rapid construction of those tissues that convey water and minerals and sugars. The conversion processes involving light and nutrients. The chance side effect of oxygen production. But some of my friends have watched it all unfold under a microscope and still had cause to wonder... What senses or instincts are trees following? What do they feel? I've been observing as a prickly Moses, Acacia verticillata, has been growing over the past few years, pressed awkwardly into a gymnastic posture as it sprouts up under the water tank. I don't suppose it'll survive so well, all contorted like that. It might seem a pointless effort. But I'd still like to live my life in that style. To simply do what I might. Grow as I must. In the spot that I've landed in. Improvising. Perhaps there's actually no other choice. But either way, I'd like to do it with the moxie of this prickly Moses. It looks like a dancer that's been set in lignum the sculpture of a bird with spiny foliage for feathers. Which is reminiscent, I guess, of the old story about an impoverished elderly couple in the hills of Phrygia who showed hospitality to a pair of gods that were travelling around incognito. This was back in the day, of course. The couple's names were Bausis and Philemon, and they put on a hell of a spread for their visitors, not knowing they were gods. Their neighbourhood was about to be flooded and made uninhabitable, but the gods said they'd spare Balsas and Philemon for their kindness. When asked where they'd like to be relocated, the pair consulted one another, and asked for it to be arranged that they could stay, that they wouldn't have to start again. And furthermore, they asked that they would never see each other pass away, So the gods turned them into trees, one a linden, the other an oak. And so leaves and bark grew over their bodies, and just as their lips were finally sealed, they wished each other farewell, but then remained standing together for centuries longer, close to one another, in the mutual silence of ancient love. There's another yarn that I heard in Europe in more recent times. It was when Germany was divided, east and west Berlin riven with a wall, wire fences strung up throughout the countryside. Someone I know said they'd had an acquaintance back then, a young woman who decided to take her chances, leaping the fence at a certain point where an old beech forest still stood a remnant of the primeval woods which the original Germanic people called home. This woman approached the fence in a desolate part of the forest, took a deep breath and leaped towards it. She got caught on the fence as she jumped it and a big cut went up her torso, but still she ran. However, the border guards gave chase. Chances didn't look great for the young emigrant. Perhaps she tripped over. Or maybe a bullet was fired in haste. Whatever happened next, this young lass didn't emerge from the forest. Instead, the story goes. She sprouted leaves, set down roots, and remained in the forest. I had it pointed out to me. A beautiful beech younger than most of the rest in the forest, with a large scar up the trunk, dripping sap. I too hope to outlast the worst days. I would love nothing more than to slowly take on the miraculous nature of a tree. A hewn pine, a magnolia, a maple, a cherry blossom. A philosopher once wrote that we walk in the forest, and feel that we are, or might be, what the forest is dreaming. I have sometimes felt like that, indeed. Some years ago on the Black Sea, I watched a busload of women disembark by a certain tree – a birch, I think. They were dressed rather demurely – religious women. But nevertheless, they started tying strips of material onto the branches of that tree. I later discovered that it was considered a fertility tree. Not part of the version of Islam that is popular in that part of the world at the moment, but a relic of pagan times which has somehow survived. These women wanted children, and they still believed that paying homage to a tree would do the trick. It's not the last time I saw a demonstration of this tradition. In Estonia, in an open field, I came upon an enormous old apple tree, its gnarled branches covered with tattered rags. And later in the mountains on the border of Iran and Iraq, I noticed fabric strips decorating trees in the graveyard of a Shia saint. I saw a wishing tree in Melbourne the other week as well. They seem to be all over the earth. You could produce a long list of other spiritual activities involving trees. People kiss and hug them. They dance around them. Rain-making ceremonies and legal tribunals are held under certain bowers. All kinds of cultures have prayed to trees. The timber of a ginkgo is carved into religious figurines. At Wassailing festivals, cider will be tossed onto the roots of fruit trees. Often those who still enact the old rituals are dear to modern religions as well, which technically do not tolerate the worship of trees. But it still happens. For forests sprout in the human subconscious, whether we like it or not and you can see how it happens. Trees connect the subterranean realm with the sky. We are in awe of the vertical dimension on which they live. Perhaps we can see ourselves mirrored in trees as well. Unlike other animals, we have the same posture. Maybe we have a little less grandeur. Yet it's not the trees saying that, but my own little sense of insecurity. Also on a global scale, humans have had a traditional practice of individuals or communities becoming associated with specific trees or tree species. Something like the idea of a totem, which may be familiar. Of course I never grew up with this, so it's hard for me to get my head around it exactly. But across different cultures this appears to be a complex relationship in which trees protect and shape identity, but they also demand to be looked after and are approached only by certain careful methods. As I say, this is not my tradition. But there seems to be a human need that is met by these practices. And perhaps it would also help us to be inspired not to bugger up our bush quite so much. However, we would go about it if we had such rituals. I'm not about to start ripping off indigenous practices or pretending to envision these ecosystems with some artificial spirituality. But I do like the idea of choosing to care for particular trees and undertaking a physical act to make it feel like it counts, to work that relationship into my memory, if nothing else. So every so often I make a pilgrimage to a few different trees in the mountains of Tasmania. Sometimes I do nothing more than put my hands on their bark or pluck and crush a few leaves to smell their perfume. Sometimes I have a yarn with them. And of course I've often written poems. But you almost can't help but do that, or so it seems. Over the past few years, on the volcanic plains of western Victoria, the Jabwarung people have been trying to defend a scattering of trees that they consider sacred. These trees have been a part of their traditional life for hundreds of years. One, a birthing tree, has supported a number of generations. Another was seen in the shape of a woman and gave directions to travelling clans moving across the vast district. Last I read, the Jabwarung had eventually won an injunction, putting a pause on the road building that was threatening the trees although not before some of these special eucalyptuses were felled and taken away on trailers. On the other hand, this fight was also a sign of the living connection between this Aboriginal community and their country. And it was yet another example for anyone wanting to see what a real relationship with land looks like. A vision of how to stand up for the living world when its voices are not heard in any parliament or court of law. No doubt it's a complex matter, but it seems we've come to the point where we need to make innovative policy and legislation to protect the ecosystems in which we live. In some parts of the world, rivers, lakes, swamps and trees are starting to be seen as potential legal entities. In some countries, ecosystems in general are given rights. I reckon this is only the beginning. As the activist Vandana Shiva says, it's from the forests that we can learn democracy, that every species has its place. Her career as an ecologist started with protests in her Himalayan homeland, where deforestation had led to landslides, floods, and shortages of drinking water and fuel she stood with peasant women who saw that the worth of those mountain forests went well beyond timber. They said they'd cling to the trees until the loggers left. And if they wanted to knock the trees down, then they'd have to knock the women down as well. Modern industrial methods lead to monocultures, which are a sort of death to most critters, and another symptom of the boring modern world that we seem tempted to create. But the diverse processes that give birth to life are at the heart of rich complex forests. The forest is a unity in diversity, writes Vandana Shiva. Near me today there are several properties on which trees are being cleared. Some folks are chainsawing timber that fell in a windstorm the other night. A neighbour is putting in a new dairy. Someone else is building new houses. Sometimes I let my imagination and my feelings get the best of me. And I sense that my little patch of rugged bush is slowly getting trimmed away. And I worry for the white goss who sometimes visits. The bandicoots who hide in the undergrowth. The tiny sky-blue mushrooms that live on the dead logs. To me... The word development seems frequently synonymous with the word destruction. I feel like I need to take a walk to where trees aren't threatened, where the vegetation is all tangled up and untrammeled, so I can breathe easily and clear my head. You too could go out into the bush, wherever you can, Wander into the thickest, most ancient forest or your local park. Stroll along the Merry Creek. Find a Douglas fir on the slopes of a great granite mountain. Catch a glimpse of a weedy eucalypt on the coast of Iberia or on a Greek island. Embroil yourself in a tea tree thicket. Hike up to the Arctic Circle to see some stunted little spruce or just look out the window at the scraggly lemon tree in your backyard. Visit lindeboom, kumuria, nar, chandal, roble, hinokio, björk, banana. Just choose one individual tree. Stand still before it. Meditate, if that's what you like to call it. Contemplate. Consider. Look closely. Note the texture of the bark, the shape of the leaves, the scent. Imagine roots sprawling through the soil. Imagine the work going on in the trunk. Make all this up if you have to. Think of the cells. Think of photosynthesis. Take this tree in your head. Hold it for as long as you can. For a moment, recede from the centre of your universe. Fold into the world. Share. Grow. Gird yourself for the existence of others. Give yourself up. Look at the tree, then you can hug it if you want, no harm in that, and if you like, make a wish. turns out that the word tree is part of a cohort of the oldest words we've got in the English language. We can trace it back thousands of years to the Indo-European idiom, the tongue of a mysterious group of people whose language influenced many of the cultures in Europe and Asia, and later the whole world. If we meander into this linguistic past, we find a word something like doru the ancestor of today's tree words in not just the English language but also in Persian and Albanian and Sanskrit, among others. There's more to it than that, though. The same word seems to have been the origin of the word true. Linguists suggest that the concept that both of these inherently share is solidity, reliability, sturdiness. Slow motionless, in tune with the seasons. Trees are keepers of memories. They offer a continuity that we don't find much in the world anymore, keeping track of the time in a way that goes far beyond what we're used to. Take, for instance, a conifer that grows on the plateau behind me. To get to it you must climb onto the escarpment on foot, You leave your car in a clearing and then begin to scramble uphill through a great swathe of green bush on a winding track that gradually makes its way to the lip of a dolerite massif. As you get nearer to the top, you realise that the plant life is mostly reducing in size, consolidating itself, trying to insulate against Antarctic winds. Often you'll get blasted with a southerly as soon as you get out of the lee of the mountain range so you can understand why they'd want to crouch down too. Up there is country shaped by ice. The first thing you see once you attain the plateau is an expanse of sphagnum moss and peat country with curious creek systems that are the relatively recent creation of the end of the last ice age. But it's also a landscape susceptible to fire. And you'll notice that standing firm with wet feet in this peaty bog is a pencil pine. A big fat bugger with branches reaching up into the atmosphere. Oddly solitary. Because it's a survivor. When fire swept through the plateau in the 60s, this one kept out of harm's way somehow, even as most of its cobbers were destroyed. Something like a third of the pencil pines in the world were wiped out in that one fire. The plateau caught fire again six years ago. I was up there then, standing next to this pencil pine, as charred gum leaves blew over from an active blaze just a few k's to the west. Pencil Pines evolved in a time when this country was further south, when it was cooler and wetter, when it was still connected to half a continent, which we have since called Gondwana Land. They don't belong in a hot climate, with extreme weather scenarios, which I'm afraid to say are the conditions that are increasing in Tasmania as the years of global heating progress. I've spoken with scientists who gently suggest that trees like the pencil pine may be extinct within my lifetime. There are certain places full of these sorts of species, which now feel like relics of a passing era. I suspect that I'll at least see some of them burn. I've been a bit slow on the uptake, but I've eventually come to realise just how much I was affected by that summer when fire smouldered on the plateau for months. My language lost all its nuance. I spat and hissed and disassociated myself from friends and loved ones. I distinctly, regrettably remember some of the rants I went on. The rainforests are fucked, I said, with all the poetic sensibility of a Tasmanian politician. And there are a lot of fucking trees. But actually, there used to be a whole lot more. It's not just bushfires. We've cleared countless hectares for various industries. An incredible amount of waste around the world. And trying to replace living bush with plantations answers nothing, because the forest isn't just the trees. It's a relatively recent sleight of hand that's gotten so many of us to believe that a forest is only worth what it costs because it gives us most of what we need for nothing. I reckon the least we can do is tread gently between the trees, if only for the sense of having right relationships with the rest of the world around us. There's a line from a novel that's been coming to my mind lately. The book's by Nikos Kazantzakis. A fictionalised life of Jesus. It's kind of neither here nor there. But Kazantzakis puts a pagan twist onto the words of Christ. Be patient, he says. Look at the trees. Are they in a hurry to ripen their fruit? To which his version of Judas replies, I'm not a tree. I'm a man. And that means a thing which is in a hurry. Our species has become impulsive like this. We rush, we race, we force the issue. But the tree is true. Now, cooler bars aren't native to my neck of the woods. I sit under a bloody big white gum instead, lean against its bark, wrap it on for a while, and wait to hear its calm response. I think it often says something like this. Yeah, Right. Or this too will pass. Or pull your head in. Or you knew that all along. Slow down. Stop your ranting and raving. Remember to breathe. Remember to be kind. Sometimes I think it's saying I should get more life advice from bush poems. But probably not.